The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Gentlemen, welcome to the July 8th edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. We have a great show for you today. Uh, A lot on the menu. I have a little bit more of a calm mind now. Uh, We actually had two nights uh, that didn't sound like we were in (laughs) a active war zone. Even here in Oakland, the fireworks have calmed down just a touch. I hope everybody had a nice long weekend. We continue to reheat our presidential race, although we're not going to spend a tremendous amount of time speaking about Trump and Biden against each other. We are going to talk about comparisons between Donald Trump, Richard Nixon, and Jimmy Carter. That's our interview a little bit later. And we're going to talk about the presidential candidate for whom announced he was running on July 4th. Kanye West, I know that whenever I talk about Kanye, it is either a I cannot get enough or I need to turn off the podcast moment, and I wasn't going to talk about him today. In in fact, if you are a part of the $3 Club, I, I did a whole thing on Monday where I talked about my thoughts about Kanye West and whether or not he was going to be somebody that uh, uh, had any kind of effect on this election. But he gave an interview. And we're going to talk about that interview. Because he explains the very, very, very Kanye reasons he's running for president and the very Kanye policy positions that he holds right now. And of course, I will do my best to decipher what, if anything, that means for the 2020 election. But first, the matter requires a two thirds vote in the affirmative. All those delegates in favor say aye. All those delegates opposed say no. In the opinion of the, let me do that again. All of those delegates in favor say aye. Aye. All those delegates opposed say no. No. The year is 2012. This is the Democratic National Convention and the man speaking is Antonio Villagorosa. He is attempting to conduct the business of the Democratic platform for that year. Up for debate is whether or not the capital of Israel should be recognized as Jerusalem by the Democratic Party. All those delegates in favor say aye. Aye. All those delegates opposed say no. No. 
In the opinion of the chair, two-thirds have voted in the affirmative. The motion is adopted, and the platform has been amended, as shown on the screen. This earned much. boos from the crowd, and very obviously, Via Garosa, the former mayor of Los Angeles, had his finger on the scale in terms of counting audibly what a two-thirds majority was, because it seemed pretty 50-50 when people said no three times. I wanted to use this as an example because this shouldn't be a particularly controversial year for the Democratic Party. It's 2012. Barack Obama is at the height of his powers. There shouldn't be much to argue about, and yet that moment happened. That's because the creation of a party's platform is, has, and likely always will be a total cluster. But this year, it might be the biggest cluster of all time. For as long as there have been conventions, there have been fights over the platforms. In fact, it might be the only thing consistent between the old convention system and the one we have now, which is a post-primary convention system. The convention system of the past was actually where everything got done. The post-primary is mostly ceremonial, except for the platform. Every little cultural shift, every weak-willed candidate who didn't follow through, every unorthodox strategy that party faithfuls have swallowed are reckoned with once every four years, when the people that care the most about the party unleash their fury they've kept hidden since the last meeting. So real quick, what is a party's platform? Well, according to Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge, a political party platform or program is a formal set of principal goals which are supported by a political party or individual candidate in order to appeal to the general public. In reality, it's your starter instructions. If you want to run as a Republican, then understand that if you color outside of any of these lines, you're going to run into trouble. Same thing with the Democrats and also your third parties like Greens and Libertarians. This process has taken on an increased importance in times when a party is morphing. In the first season of my history podcast, Raise the Dead, we discussed the furor around Richard Nixon secretly working with Nelson Rockefeller to make the GOP platform more liberal in 1960. But in our modern era, the platform is mostly a focus to the Democrats and almost entirely because of one man, Bernie Sanders. Let's remember that when he dropped out of this primary race, he made it very clear that he wanted his supporters to continue to vote for him in the primary contest to follow. Why? Because more votes mean more delegates, more delegates mean more people in that room 
where you are able to voice your opinion on issues. And when the issues that Bernie Sanders is pushing are fairly radical for the platform of the Democratic Party, and you have an ability to change that initial rule sheet that any new candidate who wants to run with the backing of a nationally recognized party has to follow, well, that's a pretty worthwhile goal. No matter what, the 2020 Democratic platform was going to be contentious. But to be totally honest, unless you're a mega nerd, which you probably are because you're listening to me on a politics podcast, you normally don't care about this kind of stuff. It's for the partisans. It's for the people that really, 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 really care about a party. And so unless you're following the social media posts or some of the YouTube clips and the sparing coverage that the national media gives it, it's mostly out of sight, out of mind. It's a bunch of people yelling at each other and, you know, eventually they come up with something. But this year, there is no place to confine it. The Democratic Party is not going to have a traditional physical convention thanks to COVID. They are going to conduct their business online. And if that's the case, then now we have a very public by the very nature of what it is and recordable version of a platform committee. But not only that, a platform committee that is in an inflection point where Bernie Sanders just ran his most powerful campaign yet and bowed out early so he and his supporters could have more sway on the platform. And what is that going to sound like? Maybe a little something like this. It has been my great honor to serve you as chair. It has been three terms I have served you as chair of this body. That is Nicholas Swarwak. He is the chair of the Libertarian Party. And what you are hearing is a particularly heated moment where he takes a rage quit away from the mic and then dares other delegates to vote him out as chair. This came at the end of a three-day process, all viewable on YouTube, where the Libertarian Party nominated their president and vice president, and this moment comes at the end of a debate on whether or not the Libertarian Party will hold an in-person or fully online convention. I think that some of the obstructionism that has been applied has exceeded the bounds of what is acceptable in disputes inside this party. There have been lines that have been crossed that should not have been crossed. There have been personal attacks that have been made that should not have been made. And there have been abuses of office and position that have hurt this party and hurt these delegates. And it is one of the few things 
that can actually make me angry. As anyone who's been a member of a message board or played online games with TeamSpeak will tell you, online arguments last longer than real world arguments. The ability to go to the bathroom, get a meal, get a drink, will always prolong passion. Combine that with the ability to mute mics or boot delegates with the push of a button and not the request for a security guard to make a gigantic scene while they get dragged out. And I believe we are headed for among the largest online dumpster fires of all time. And I don't say that lightly. I'm aware that it's 2020 and Twitter exists. On the Republican side, they've got their own problems. They are going to conduct a physical meeting in Charlotte, but it will not contain all the delegates that would have otherwise been there. And the initial suggestion from the GOP was that they weren't going to change the platform at all since 2016. They were literally going to copy-paste. This was met with furor from the right, and even Donald Trump has said that he is not for that. We await and see what their solution will be. No matter what they decide, and no matter how the decorum of the DNC platform gets worked out, it's worth noting that we got to this point discussing how this will go, and why it will heighten tensions and passion without even mentioning what might be the biggest part of this story. The fact that an online platform will be an almost irresistible target for trolling. I just wanted you to know. I, I swore to myself. I said I wasn't going to talk about Kanye today. I wasn't going to talk about Kanye today. I said I wasn't going to do it. People get so mad when I talk about Kanye. But I got to talk about Kanye. I got to. I got to. <sighs> All right, like I said, in the PX3 Extra on Monday, $3 club, you already got it. The, the the very quick TLDR, and I go into much more detail there. I do think that even if we are looking at Kanye West saying he is going to run for president as strictly album promotion, that there is an enthusiasm gap that can be exploited from Biden's side in that people are not enthusiastic to vote for him. They might be enthusiastic to vote against Trump, but they're not enthusiastic to vote for Biden, at least compared to Trump, that a chaos agent, and let's not look at him as a serious candidate. Let's look at him as a chaos agent like Kanye West can affect something. Now I say can because I don't think he will. I do not think that Kanye is Trump. Donald Trump got into a primary 
early enough to make a difference and immediately showed tremendous polling that forced somebody to take him seriously. Kanye can be ignored if you want him to. And so I will invite you, if you don't want to hear about Kanye, and I get it, man, for a million different reasons, people just find him to be contemptible or find his positions to be contemptible, then I would encourage you to go ahead and skip to the following timestamp. 28 minutes, 41 seconds. Skip there if you don't want to hear anything else about Kanye. I'm gonna, I, I want to give you the gift of ignoring him if you do not want to hear my thoughts. I totally get it. No worries. Please go ahead and skip there. Okay. Now, I want to be very clear. I hate the term steal votes. There are no votes to be stolen. Nobody's owed a vote. You earn votes. But I do think that there is an exploitable position. There is a weakness that Biden has, specifically that he is not loved, that Kanye can highlight. And whether or not it means people vote for Kanye, it could result in people that Biden is counting on, specifically city-dwelling voters in Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, that might not vote for Biden, whether or not they vote for Kanye. So that's the basic. That's that, that, that's where I'm coming from. And again, if you want more information on that, please, 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 $3 club. You can get it on Patreon, blah, blah, blah. But today, Kanye sat down, or at least was on the phone with Randall Lane, the chief content officer and editor of Forbes, and he ran down a little bit more into exactly how serious he is in running for president and what his platforms would be. So let's just kind of run through what this article says. Number one, he said that if Trump weren't in office, if there weren't a sitting Republican president, he'd run as a Republican. In fact, what you see throughout this article is a tremendous animus toward the Democratic Party. Kanye has had a on and off relationship with Candace Owens, not physically, but but in terms of ideological relationship with Candace Owens. Allegedly, there was some connection between Kanye's designers and Candace Owens's Blexit organization. But the idea of Blexit, a black exit from the Democratic Party, is that the Democratic Party has taken the black vote for granted. To that point, Kanye's very angry with the Democratic Party. He is very angry with the establishment that tells him if he does not vote for the Democratic Party, if he does not support Democratic politicians, then he is betraying his race. In the mind of Kanye, that is, to quote Kanye, a form of racism, white supremacy, and white control. 
He goes on to say, the reason why this is the first day that I have registered to vote is because I was scared. I was told that if I voted on Trump, my music career would be over. I was threatened into being in one party. I was threatened as a celebrity into being in one party. I was threatened as a black man into the Democratic Party. And that's what the Democrats are doing emotionally to my people. Threatening them to the point where this white man can tell a black man that if you don't vote for me, you're not black. End quote. This, of course, was the quote given by Biden to Charlemagne the God during his interview on The Breakfast Club. Now, there's a lot of Kanye in this interview, and it ranges, as Kanye often does, from the serious to the sublime. Let's start with the sublime. He wants to run America in the way that the fictional African country of Wakanda is run. He believes that our way that we organize government is flawed. What we need are not bureaucrats, but designers to design a more beautiful way for us to equitably distribute the life, liberty, and pursuit of justice that America promises. And then we get into issues that some folks will find troubling. Kanye West has very pointed opinions on vaccines. Quote, it's so many of our children that are being vaccinated and paralyzed. So when I say that the way that when they say that they're that they're going to fix COVID is with a vaccine, I'm extremely cautious. That's the mark of the beast. They want to put chips inside us. They want to do all kinds of things to make it where we can't cross the gates of heaven. I'm sorry when they say that the humans will have the devil inside of them. And the sad thing is that the saddest thing is that we won't make it to heaven. And there will be some of us that do not make it. Next question. End quote. It's at this point that I have to tell you guys that the reason why I love Kanye West as an artist and I find him to be a unique pop culture genius is because he's literally insane and that's why I'm listening. There is a way in which he speaks and he has been prone to conspiracy for as long as he's been a nationally recognized artist. This is the first song on his aptly named album for the current moment, Late Registration, featuring Adam Levine of Maroon 5. Now, Maroon 5 is hot back then, right? This is, this is uh, 2005. Maroon 5 is at the top of their powers, and Kanye West just casually slips in that the government has administered AIDS. Get a raise on a minimum wage, and I know the government administer AIDS, so I guess we just pray like the minister. My point here is just to say that if you believe that Kanye West has gone crazy, or that Kanye West's new religious conversion has brought him to a certain level of thinking, I would just encourage you to take his lyrics seriously. He has always been an extraordinarily conspiratorial thinker, and that's part of his worth as an artist. Moving on, Kanye says that he is going to be running under the birthday party ticket. 
because when we all win, it's everyone's birthday. Direct quote. He is working with guidance from Elon Musk and has chosen his vice presidential candidate. That is Wyoming preacher Michelle Tidball. I have not done a lot of research into Michelle Tidball. So the clip I'm about to play, I don't want to act like it's representative of a lot of research. I want to get this podcast done and out there. But just so you can hear her voice, this is Michelle Tidball from her own website. That is yarash.org, Y-A-R-A-S-H dot org. And this is from uh, an MP3 file that she has posted there about being off the grid, the importance of being off the grid. He wants sons to live off of the grid of the enemy. Thus, why off the grid? So sons living off the grid of the enemy. So a grid, just very quickly, if you were to do a search in Merriam-Webster's dictionary or something, a grid is a bunch of lines that cross each other, okay? So they can be um, perpendicular, they can cross, they cross and intersect together. So that's a grid. And he said that the enemy had a grid and he didn't want his sons living on that grid. A P.O. box on uh, Michelle's website says that you can reach her in Cody, Wyoming, which is now where Kanye lives as well, which we assume is where they met. Kanye does say that Donald Trump has mishandled the coronavirus and reveals that he got the coronavirus in February. He also heard a rumor that Drake got the coronavirus and felt competitive about even being stricken by a pandemic saying Drake could not have been sicker than him. However, he saves most of his venom for the candidate that I believe he poses the biggest threat to, Joe Biden. Quote, a lot of times, just feels like political parties, they feel all blacks have to be Democrat. This man, Joe Biden, said, if you don't vote for me, then you are not black. Well, act like we didn't hear that. We act like we didn't hear that man say that. That man said that. It's a wrap. We're going to walk. All the people. Jay-Z said it best. For all the candidates, I just gracefully suggest y'all bow out. Trump and Biden gracefully bow out. It's God's country. We are doing everything in service to God. Nobody but God no more. I'm in service to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I put everything I get on the line to serve God. End quote. All right. Now, I'm not going to cover every little bit of Kanye news, and I'm not going to give the Kanye of it all that much space on this show. I do want to at least acknowledge it, mostly because, as I said on the PX3 Extra, there are not many things on the planet that I can confidently say I feel I'm a worldwide expert on, but if we're charting out the feasibility and viability of a third-party write-in spoiler candidacy of Kanye West, uh, I, I kind of feel like I'm I'm in the world rankings at the very least. So I wanted to flex that here 
for you guys. But if you are furious and you're upset and you're going to write in to the young American at gmail.com and say that if I talk Kanye again, you're going to drop uh, uh, any and all support. Well, I hear you already. Don't worry. That'll be it for now. After this one last quote in talking about why he put on the MAGA hat for the uh, situation a few years ago where he visited Trump in the White House. Quote, one of the main reasons I wore the red hat as a protest to the segregation of votes in the black community. Also, other than the fact that I like Trump hotels and the saxophones in the lobby. End quote. I've loved you better than your own can be From the very start I don't blame you much for wanting to be free I just wanted you to know Ladies and gentlemen, we did it! Hell yeah, we did it! We did it! Together, we did it. Ah, we're there. We're there. We're there. The way to 1K has been completed as of yesterday, 7-7, July 7th. We are now a 1,000 patron strong experience. Uh, Man, uh, you know, the more I look around at the podcasts that have that kind of support, the more I see podcasts that I model my own behavior after, that I look up to, people that are legends to me, and you have made us one of them. You have made us peers. Uh, I mean, what else can I say? What else can I say other than thank you? And uh, especially in these times, uh, uncertain times, you know, it means that much more. So I would encourage everybody to join in the celebration. If you thought about supporting, now it's a thousand strong peer pressure because we are making this content for you. Non-narrative driven. Non-advocacy. Analysis you won't hear anywhere else. So you like all that, but you don't mind that I just spent 10 minutes on Kanye. Sorry again. Then please head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 Club gets two bonus episodes each and every uh, week on Monday and Thursday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. My guest today is Kevin Matson, a Connor Studi professor of contemporary history at Ohio University. He is the author of the book Just Plain Dick and has a forthcoming book, We Are Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan and the Real Culture War of the 1980s America. He is joining us to discuss comparisons of Donald Trump and Richard Nixon as well as Jimmy Carter. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Great to be with you. All right. So Donald Trump, obviously somebody of immense fascination, considering he is uh, the first non-military, non-politician uh, uh, president in 
the history of the country, or yeah, I think the history of the country. Uh, and one of the things that I found is that people can't stop trying to figure out who he's like. There is a lot of comparisons yeah. that go around, if even just to more what we're watching into some kind of context because we are pattern-recognizing creatures and that is what we do by nature. Two that come up a lot, one in terms of his administration and the other, I think more so now, are Nixon and Carter. So let's start with Nixon what do you th what what do you see in comparisons between the two presidents? Well, you're asking a question obviously about Trump in, in the in the context that we're facing right now, meaning uh, will he win a second term? Um, and Nixon does win a second term. It just gets cut short because of uh, uh, possibilities of impeachment around Watergate. Um, I think that the comparisons to between Trump and Nixon, and I agree with what you prefaced this with, I'm very cautious about historical analogies because they very often, you know, kind of collapse. But I do think there are some certain parallels here. First off, number one, uh, you know, both Trump and Nixon have a, a severe kind of loyalty issue. Um, those who work for them are supposed to remain loyal and steadfast and never question um, the, the, the executive branch. Um, you see this in Nixon with, like, you know, the rise of his enemies list um, and his complaint about leaks, which is a term that, you know, Donald Trump always uses whenever things don't go necessarily his way. Um, I think that both of them really dislike dissent and protest. Of course, for Nixon, that was dissent and protest against the Vietnam War. For Trump, it's Black Lives Matter protest, so that's not a direct analogy. But I do think that they see protest as synonymous with um, disloyalty um, and uh, lack of patriotism. Um, I think that also, you know, there's, a, there's the tendency to and desire to um, use kind of crafty um, techniques to try to win re-election and, and see winning as, as something that you do no matter what the cost of it is. The person who's probably most, you know, who, who you can see a, a, a distinct bridge between Nixon um, and, and Trump is, is Roger Stone, um, who cut yeah. his teeth politically with Nixon and then was obviously a, a fairly influential within the, um, you know, Trump campaign. The, 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 the final thing that I'd also say in terms of analogies is that, um, you know, Nixon was the president who came up with the term the silent majority. And he set that out in 1969 and basically made the case that, you know, the silent majority is predominantly white. He doesn't say that directly, but the, 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 it's obvious that that's what he's referring to. Um, obviously white and um, more conservative, and yet not very vocal. That's what makes them supposedly silent. Um, Trump actually ripped off the, 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 the term silent majority when he first campaigned, um, you know, four years ago. Um, so I think that there are some definitely direct analogies, and yet also I think perhaps the most important or the most interesting one is also the persona. Um, Trump shares a lot of Richard Nixon's p persona in terms of his paranoia um, and in terms of his, you know, fear of losing control. Um, and so I think that there's, there's something about the personality type that both Trump and Nixon have and that they, um, you know, I think share or shared, I should say. Let's actually circle back to the to the silent majority thing, because that's something that not only have I heard from Trump's lips, but also when I went and covered the Tulsa rally a few weeks ago, it 
was something that was very much on the lips of his followers. His followers were 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 very keen on identifying themselves as the silent majority. And the sense I got from them was the the modern context is we're here and we are very loud. We're just not covered. We are silenced by the media. And that would be something that Richard Nixon also very much had a bugaboo about in terms of being feeling like, there was a, a liberal media class that was there to denigrate him at every turn. Do you see that comparison? Oh, oh, absolutely. The the hatred of the of of the press uh, and of the media in general um, uh, is is just something that they absolutely share. Um, and I, you know, I think the question is, of course, does that will that necessarily work? For Nixon, the way it, um, or will it work for Trump, the way it maybe worked for Nixon? That's that's difficult to, to you know make a final judgment on. But absolutely, a vehemence about the media um, and seeing the media as a kind of you know a source of, of liberal elitism, um, which goes back into and connects directly with the idea of a silent majority that's not being heard by those who are reporting out events. I mean, the one thing that I would say is a difference if to, to critique the analogy is that Nixon seemed perpetually frustrated by the media. And while Trump certainly is frustrated that he does not get the coverage he wants, he's from a system in New York where he is used to manipulating it. He is he is far more, it seems, uh, interested to get his name in the paper as much as possible because at least he, he can control the narrative that way. Uh, than Nixon was. N- Nixon seemed to be somebody that was almost uh, 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 mortally injured by it, as we kind of saw in his famous, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore, quote, after he lost for governor. No, I think that's 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 w- well well stated. Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, I think that it, if we're looking at these two guys and we say who is the true outsider, they both portray themselves as outsiders, meaning outside of the liberal establishment, um, outside of the, the ranks of the elite. Um, Nixon has at least a few bona fides. Um, he's, you know, born a Westerner, um, wasn't born wealthy, um, had to work throughout his childhood, um, and also wound up only being able to attend Duke University, something that he felt like was a kind of, you know, a a, a whack at his own standing because he really wanted to go to, you know, Harvard or Yale, but felt rejected by those places and, and, and went to Duke instead. Um, you know, I think that, you know, so I think that Nixon has a little bit more truthfulness, which is a weird word to use for Richard Nixon, a little bit of truthfulness about how his background really does reflect a kind of, you know, um, uh, salt of the earth, um, regular average sort of guy. Donald Trump cannot make that claim <laughs> whatsoever, as you pointed out. He comes out of the world of New York City uh, real estate um, and, and was born into, you know, I mean, he's, he was born born wealthy. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's kind of interesting they both play that. Um, I would say if I had to make a judgment about who's more maybe slightly honest about the issue, I'd say it would be Richard Nixon. Um, Trump just has no authenticity parading himself about as if he's the, you know, the average guy or speaks for the average guy. And yet he identifies with, or at least many of the average guys that I've talked to at, at his rallies do identify with Donald Trump. That has been at least part of the touchstone for him, even as a media figure before he became a politician. So here, let me ask you this question. If Richard Nixon coined the term silent majority and then, you know, had one of the most decisive election victories in history against Hubert Humphrey in 1968, 
do you have any sense that Donald Trump is right when he says that the silent majority has his back? You know, that's hard for me to for for me to say. I mean, that would probably be a better question posed to maybe someone who's like a considered a political scientist, because I I, re- I don't I don't know. Um, clearly, you know, he won that sector of the population, predominantly the white working class, um, who in uh, you know Nixon's period of time were were the the people who led the hard hat rebellion against protesters against Vietnam. Um, I think that you know with 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 Trump, um, he seems to have a hold of the white working class. Um, the question, of course, is, is this enough to um, necessarily win him re-election? Um, and whether or not he will lose anything um, in terms of the support from the silent majority, um, if things continue to go as poorly as they have in terms of the coronavirus, obviously, and, and the protest about Black Lives Matter. Um, I, I, but I don't, I don't feel confident or comfortable making a judgment about, you know, will it, will it work for him? Um, because I don't, I just simply don't know. That's, that's something that I kind of stay out of as a historian. Sure, I only sure. look at what's really actually on the historical record. Well, then let's look at something that's on the historical record, and that's the other uh, person in this comparison, and that is Jimmy Carter. Uh, I've long said on this particular show that leading into this year, if you are handicapping Donald Trump's odds just as a sitting president with a good economy, then you would have to rate them fairly high just by how those presidents have fared uh, going into re-election. And if you were going to ding his chances, then you would need something akin to what happened to Carter, where not only did you have a massive embarrassment with Iran-Contra, but also the economy was in a bad position. And lo, we find ourselves here in July 2020, where the economy is not in a very good position, and there is a gigantic international embarrassment uh, on his plate. So what comparisons do you see between Trump and Jimmy Carter? Well, I mean, first off, much fewer than with Richard Nixon. Um, And again, that's probably partially the personality type. Um, uh, Carter was a little bit more self-inquisitive than Trump is. Um, And I I think was a, a person who was concerned with the civic public good as much as he was about, you know, having political power. Um, he actually even once said, you know, I, I'd be fine not being president because I, I you know, I, I'm more comfortable being an active citizen than I am necessarily governing the country. Um, I, I, so I don't think there's that, that many. I think that the, the, in terms of those comparisons, I would say, you know, um, that the only thing that I could imagine is is maybe some of the kind of moralistic language that Trump's used um, in terms of American carnage um, and and you know fear of decline in, of America. Um, some of that shows up in some of you know Jimmy Carter's most famous public statements, including the the speech that that I wrote about, which is which was often labeled the malaise speech, but was yeah. really actually the crisis of confidence speech. So I think you know some sort of you know fear about you know the country possibly slipping into decline. Maybe that's shared. But then, you know, but but Trump just uses it purely for fear. Um, Carter kind of tried to use it, I think, to, to build at least some national unity and, and certainly faith in, in government. Um, and I think that that's, you know, so again, I, I, see, I see them as, as very different characters. Um, I, I would agree with what you preface this with, which is that, you know, it, it may not be the, the, the similarities between them as, as pre- sitting presidents. It might be the context 
and the things going on around them, um, of which they very often don't have that much control of, that they're going to actually, you know, have the biggest impact upon their political fate. So let's dive into that 1980 race for a second. Carter obviously is embattled with Iran-Contra and the gas shortage. Reagan presents himself as a strong man who will, you know, be able to overcome the weak will of Jimmy Carter. At least that's how he wants to project himself. Do you think that in that 1980 race, even with everything going on, if Jimmy Carter's not running against Ronald Reagan, that he loses or was, was Jimmy Carter just kind of a sitting duck for anybody that wanted to come along? Yeah, I mean Jimmy Carter. I mean, you know, it's it, I, I, what I've focused on was the was the summer of 1979. But really, to get Carter, you know, to be well understood, is you have to look at, at late 1980 when you have the you know the the Iranian hostage crisis erupting, um, and you have yeah. the Soviet sorry, I, I said I, 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 I said Iran Contra. I meant Iranian hostage. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I know. <laughs> um, so you know, I mean, th- th- that's that's very different um, of a setting. I mean, that's you know, serious, serious foreign policy issues, which um, I don't think, even with the virus being obviously global, I don't think um, really is, is we would categorize as a foreign policy crisis. So I think that, you know, in many ways, again, um, you're asking the question, do I think if it, if it, if um, Carter could have won the reelection in 1980? Um, Hmm. Again, you know, my historian (laughs) had put on here and I say, well, counterfactual question. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I'm yeah. not, I don't know if there was anything that he could do to actually pull himself out of that. I think what Reagan, why, why Reagan won in large part was because he was able to kind of carve out a narrative about Jimmy Carter. Um, and that's the, 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 the weak president, as you yeah. already pointed out. But also the notion like, you know, he, he immediately attacks the, the crisis of confidence speech. He sees it as an opportunity where he says, you know, Americans don't suffer from malaise a term that never actually appeared in the speech. Americans don't suffer from malaise. You know, we're a great country. We can, you know, um, and and then, you know, let's remember, you know, drawing historical analogies. He says, let's make America great again. Um, And I think that that's the sort of, you know, narrative that he built um, that I think was very successful in dethroning Jimmy Carter. Uh, But I don't feel confident saying one way or the other that, you know, there was a way that Jimmy Carter could have won the election. I just, I just simply, I don't, I don't know. And it's, you know, counterfactual anyways. What what made that Iranian hostage crisis so much of a, a death sentence for the Carter presidency in your mind? Well, you also pointed to something else that's important, which is the, the politics of oil and oil consumption in the United States. Uh, America is feels, you know, quite slighted by what, you know, it, it, the politically incorrect term that would be used is a third world country in the Middle East, basically, you know, having huge impacts and, and cre- increasing great deal of suffering by creating an oil crisis within the United States. I think that that, you know, if you take that and then you then you say, you know, and by the way, this, this you know, Iran, which was which was central to to the oil crisis um, uh, as a member of OPEC, um, we, we, you know, basically what what they're doing is they're you know, they're they're making this a country that's supposed to be great and, and have so much military power and be the most important superpower, um, uh, you know, in, in existence. And they're basically taking it down. You know, and 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 rejecting the United States, and and you know what would be considered a, an attack directly on the citizens who occupy um, the the compound where they they uh, are being held hostage. So I mean, it's it's really hard to to you know 
um, minimize uh, the, the kind of hatred um, that I think a lot of Americans expressed uh, about, about Iran seemingly going beyond the power that it's expected to have. Um, you know, when you see, when you're watching television news, um, which was something that was done back in 1980, um, you know, you're seeing footage of, like, people, uh, Iranians burning the American flag. Um, it's like a, and that's, I think, again, you know, plays into to Ronald Reagan's strong suit to, because he can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be bullied by, you know, these, 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 these countries and all this, especially not Iran, um, and it kind of projects a kind of sort of military power that, um, you know, he, he kind of foresees. So uh, it, that, is, that is fascinating, especially when you look at where we are now, mostly because although Carter very much wanted to be a nurturing, open-heart public figure and president, which then can be spun into being a feckless leader who can't make the decision at the right time because he's too touchy-feely, and that's what Reagan wanted to project. Donald Trump, on the other hand, has done everything in his power to project himself as a strong man and yet is being run against now as somebody who is weak-willed and inexperienced and unable to make the decision when he needs to make it. Do you see any of those echoes of the way that Ronald Reagan ran against Jimmy Carter in some of the language that Joe Biden uses against Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't help but to think that um, D Donald Trump would say about Jimmy Carter that he's low energy, which is the term that he <laughs> you know, flings about to about you know, Jeb Bush, his, yeah. his critics or his, his people who don't agree with him. Um, yeah, I do think that I think that there's there is a danger in I think that what Reagan did successfully, even though, I, you know, again, he I mean, he was a Hollywood actor. He had been governor of California. Um, you know, he he was he was no by no means a kind of outsider in any sort of way. Um, but he did project an image of Carter, at least, as being weak, feckless, as you've said. Um, and, and that was, I think, quite effective. Um, at, at winning him office. I think with Trump, though, I mean, you know, it's almost, I, I think Ronald Reagan was, was much smarter um, and much more attentive to the way politics play out than I think Donald Trump is today. Um, so I, a lot of his more kind of attempts to, you know, project power with like the photo op, you know, uh, in, in front of the church with the, him holding a Bible and not really even understanding whether or not he's holding it the right way. Um, you know, that, that, sort of, that sort of blustery sort of feel that he has, I don't think really works as much as I think he thinks it does. Um, I think, you know, Reagan was able to project a sort of, I'm stronger than Carter, but you got to also keep in mind that he was he was liked by people, right? Yeah. I mean, I know the silent majority likes Trump, but I mean, he had a, a kind of charisma um, that I just think that, you know, Donald Trump simply doesn't have, at least for the parts of the country that, you know, that, that maybe matter in the, in, in the, in the upcoming uh, election. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, the silent majority, they love him, but likability, yeah. I think, is something that is kind of more passive. The, the idea that, you know, that, that George W. Bush was liked. He just seemed like a guy you might enjoy, but maybe he did not inspire the adoration, for example, that, that uh, you know, a, a Trump rally crowd does. Same same with uh, Bill Clinton or, or Obama there, uh, although Obama had more of the adoration. Uh, there's there is like a kind of passive element of, oh, no, I, I, I think I agree with him. That is very carefully crafted in everybody that 
Trump, the the barroom brawler, does not seem in any way interested in in even beginning to court. No, and and I mean it's got to be that it's that macho thing that really turns on the silent majority to 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 his of his followers. I mean it's the only thing that I can you know I think his his. I mean, I think there's a there's a there's an odd thing going on about the white working class support of Donald Trump, and I should also say people who are in my age range in their you know in their fifties or so, where, where you see a, a large amount of support for him. Um, it's it goes beyond support. It's 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 practically. I mean, it's like his famous statement, right? I could shoot somebody in 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 public in Manhattan, and get away with it. There's just something remarkable about um, uh, seemingly the the appeal has to be the bluster and the macho-ness. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I think, but I, again, I would agree with you. I don't think he necessarily knows that this is going to play well outside the small, you know, sort of strong supporters, um, of his, of his presidency and, and of his leadership. And I guess it really depends on how small that support is, right? Because if yes. it's larger than we might think or, or polling might indicate, exactly. then, then this, this election looks a lot differently than some of the prognosticators might have it. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I always point out to people in, in explaining my fear of, of ever trying to predict the future. I said, you know, I mean, I looked at the last presidential election. And I remember, you know, checking out liberal sites like Huffington Post, and, and it was like Hillary Clinton has a 99.9% chance <laughs> of winning the presidency. And it never changed, right? I'd go no. back a week later and it'd be the same thing. I'd be like, wait a second, this just doesn't feel right. You know, this doesn't, this doesn't seem to capture... Um, what's going on with with the election? So I'm always extraordinarily cautious, and I think that any any historian usually is cautious because you realize, you know, how in the most recent past how many things we can get wrong, um, and maybe we do undercalculate the, the level of support that Trump will have, and maybe it's spread a little bit wider. I mean, even though the you know seemingly the polls, which I don't necessarily entirely trust. Um, are suggesting that Biden's got a pretty strong lead, um, including in the swing states that that um, Trump won the last go around. But yeah, I, I'm I'm very 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 hesitant to to ever um, you know make a prediction about the future of American politics. Fine line between educating and gaslighting yourself when it comes to stuff like this, especially in yeah. this kind of climate. Uh, let me ask you a few questions about your uh, forthcoming book uh, about Reagan in the '80s and, uh, as you call it, the the real culture war. Uh, uh, what what defines that culture war in the '80s uh, as uh, compared to the one that we see now? And speaking of our our modern media landscape, something that people seem to not be able to get enough of. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so, so the the focus of the book is on um, on punk music in the 1980s, and what's most significant, probably, to answer your question as as quickly as I can, um, is that um, you know these were the the movement was made up of young kids who were making their own music. They were sharing their music via cassette tapes, something that you know none of my undergraduate students understand what those things are, but cassette tapes. <laughs> creating their own record labels, distributing and having shows be sponsored by kind of networks of, of kids located in other towns that would help put on a show, find a space for bands to perform. Um, and so what, what you see, I think, growing out of that experience, some people call it the DIY um, thing, do-it-yourself um, sort of movement that you see uh, in other areas of 1980s um, culture. But I think that what, what, you, what you had there was actually a really strong critique of corporate consumer capitalism. Um, that is that what the, what the big you know, record labels are putting out is not very good, and that kids are going into their basements and, and playing their own music um, because they're rejecting 
um, what the music industry is actually offering to them. And if you, I mean, you know, this gets into the arcane, you know, element of, of, of music history, but the record industry was really in a bad place from about 1979 um, to uh, about 1983, um, when Michael Jackson basically rescues the music industry. Um, and there was a real big fear that people were not buying the goods that the corporate capitalists were trying to sell. And so I'd say that's a real culture war. It's a war over making your own culture and resisting the culture that's foisted upon you by those who have power, um, rather than I think sometimes what culture wars mean to other people are, you know, wars about values that probably can't be reconciled politically. Um, but I see a concrete kind of rebellion going on within uh, th this movement uh, in, in 1980s America. And by the way, was, you know, rife with critiques of Ronald Reagan. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I, that, that I recalled having lived through that period of time was, you know, Reagan's um, attempt to cut school lunch programs um, and, and how this was a part of his desire to supposedly, you know, um, cut down on federal, federal spending. Um, and it was, you know, it, these are the young people that, that were playing their music and stuff like that were kind of aware of, like, that Reagan might have charisma, he might be really likable, but there was a kind of sinister element to him, um, a kind of mean element to him, a kind of, you know, I don't care about the weak, I only care about the strong, the celebrities, and all that sort of stuff. And I think that there was a kind of critique of, of what Reaganism stood for, um, the bad side of Reaganism, if you want to say it that way, um, that, that these kids were kind of carving out for themselves um, in, in, in protest against his presidency. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that music revolution because I, I was finding as you were talking these kind of one-to-one -one analogies in scenes now that uh, uh, kids are going into their basement and making their own music and they are finding their own version of the uh, uh, cassettes that they would pass around in sites like SoundCloud and they are outside of the music scene. But the one place where it definitely does diverge is that the the music the punk music of the 80s was very much unlike anything that was being put out by mainstream music uh, uh you know channels stores radio whereas you know soundcloud music now sounds identical if not better but in the same uh, genre as stuff that is on the radio and is big on sites like like spotify so there really is not a ton of critique of what the top of that food chain is or the values therein uh rather it is almost more of a a co-opting of of well we can do exactly what you do better now that radio and mtv are gone <laughs> yeah right and and of course you know in 1980s is the decade uh, of mtv um and, and it just becomes kind of borg like in terms of how it transforms um the american music scene um, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that there, I, what I see lacking in, in a lot of contemporary um, DIY music is, is a kind of consciousness that, that you're making your own culture and that you're rejecting the culture that is predominantly being offered to you by, again, big corporations um, who probably don't know better about what it is that you really actually want to listen to. And, and you're right. I mean, the music itself, the style of the music um, being much faster, angrier sounding um, had, had its own, I think, impact upon um, kind of a, a reflected a rejection uh, of the kind of electro pop sort of stuff that dominated the 1980s. Yeah, yeah.
And here we, I mean, at least we get emo harmonies and rap songs now. So that's a nice thing that we have. So at least we have that. Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Again, my guest has been Kevin Matson. He is the Connor Studi Professor of Contemporary History at Ohio University. So, uh, uh, Kevin, I'm sure you are already girding yourself for a, a fine summer of political advertisements directed at you, right? Uh, being in a battleground state. <laughs> Can't wait. You know, I mean, even though Ohio isn't as much of the swing state as it, it once was, um, you know, yeah, Ohio gets hit up real bad um, in, terms of the, in terms of the political advertising. Of course, he's the author of Just Plain Dick, and we are not here to entertain punk rock Ronald Reagan and the real culture war of the ni- of 1980s America. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Politics. And that wraps it up for us today. I want to remind you that if you like this show, you are going to love my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five days a week, five stories a day, mostly gifts, quick read, awesome community. You're going to be happy you signed up. I also want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Modesto's own Logan Cisco, Thor, NH Blumkin, Chad, Huff, Headphones, Neil, Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Poop My Pants, Severio, who literally is a high school friend of mine who listens to the show and and signed up to the Titanic $10 tier, meaning that all my other friends from high school that have not signed up for the Titanic $10 tier, you're on notice. Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Spawn! Jerry Talbert, Gamer Goo, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Gen, Emily, Adam, Zach, Olin, Angela, Christopher, DL, Brian, Ryan, insert scoop name, Nomadic, Taryn, Miranda, Janelle, Robert, Brandon, Herschel, John Terica, Glenn Wolf Brand, Chili Scoop, Kevin, Dustin, Daycat, Richard, Nick, Mike, Lindsay, Angela, Matthew, Matthew, man, I'm watching up hockey, Matthew, uh, Random Complexity, what? Deadman, Inc., and Andrew. You want to join the ranks, you head on over. Join the thousand strong at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You want to write in TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. That's where you do it. Uh, If we get enough good emails, then we'll do a mailbag on Friday. We got some room now, so uh, if you want to yell at me for talking about Kanye... Now's the time. A reminder, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, they're talking about politics. This is the only show that talks about how three.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>